I'm Dr. Brent Schillinger, along with my colleague, Dr. Abby Strauss. Research shows that stigma towards people with substance use disorder is literally pervasive in clinical settings, and this pervasive stigma impedes the delivery of high-quality care. With that in mind, we're speaking today with Heather Howard, Associate Professor at the Phyllis and Harvey Sandler School of Social Work at Florida Atlantic University. Heather has conducted extensive research on gender-specific and trauma-informed care with a focus on reducing stigma. Heather has a great deal of clinical expertise, prevention, and treatment of substance use disorders. Welcome, Heather Howe. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here with you both. I think the first question is, how do we define stigma? That's such a great question. Dr. Goffman, a sociologist in the 60s, actually did his life's work on studying stigma. And it really is the social construction based on a distinguished characteristic that really differentiates someone as a result, the person feels dehumanized and devalued. So this would be stigma, stigmatizing is an attribute that basically highly discredited. It's exactly, and it's a distinguished characteristic. So in terms of the population we're talking about, individuals impacted by alcohol and substance use, the characteristic is someone is using alcohol or substances. As you said, there's so much stigma, and this is really the main factor that prevents people from accessing help. These individuals are often viewed, would you say, as not quite human? There's kind of three levels of stigma, institutionalized stigma that create barriers for certain groups not to receive treatment. Then you have external level on the provider, people that the individual interfaces. And then you have the internal stigma, which is what you just spoke about, where I feel I am not worthy, I am not human, and really feel worthless. Some people have written that internal stigma specifically is kind of the root of all substance use. Could you say that the internalized stigma is a manifestation perhaps of embarrassment or poor self-ego? Can it come from within or does it have to originate from without? It can come from within also because it's fear, it's embarrassment, the fear of failure. It could be internal, but it also is that factor of society and people that they have interface with that's also perpetuating the internal stigma. So it's a little bit of both. Since we're talking about substance use disorder in particular, how is stigma specific in this arena? A lot of my research and clinical work the past two decades has been specifically with women because I was at a women's oncology and birthing hospital. Women with substance use and childbearing age are one of the most stigmatized groups in our U.S. society. People that would say, okay, I have a non-stigmatic approach. When a pregnant woman comes to your ER intoxicated, that's when people really start to feel uncomfortable because it's not really uncomfortable with that. So I would say that that's probably the largest particular group, that gender, but certainly all genders experience stigma because as opposed to other disorders, let's say diabetes or even cancer, society really doesn't stigmatize. I love the parallel with diabetes. If somebody isn't really following recommendations of diet, we usually provide hope and still treat the individual and support that person in their health behavior. But it's different with alcohol and substance use. In working with my students, it's considered a moral failure for many that it's a choice. And I think that's part of the reason why we as a society stigmatize.
Do you find that the stigma exists across women who are married, women who are single, women who are pregnant out of wedlock? Because I can recall when women would come into various emergency rooms, there was a sense of difference. Mm -hmm. Oh, she got pregnant out of wedlock. How irresponsible. Right. And oh, she's also using a drug. Doubly irresponsible. From what you've seen, because there are married women who have substance abuse problems. But statistically, where do we point the arrow if the arrow can be pointed? I love what you're discussing because it's the theory of intersectionality. You have these multiple identities, and it's not just gender. It could also be race, socioeconomic status, class, religion, education. Certainly someone that is more educated and someone that's in a partnership may be treated differently. We can't ignore that. Women that are involved with DCF due to neglect, recent statistics is up to 80% are due to neglect. And under that neglect is individuals that have problems with alcohol or substance use disorder. So they're being penalized versus receiving treatment, but we know most of them are on Medicaid. What you just shared really speaks to that, that we can't ignore that we don't have equality in healthcare access. Is there a generalized age group, or if you were to plot this out, just the demographics a little bit, again, if that data exists? Right. I shared that the most highly stigmatized group from the data is women of childbearing age. The second most surgical condition that's prescribed opioids is the C-section. That's another factor, too. Let's not just have opioids in the power orders. Let's do assessments to make sure that an individual doesn't have a familial or personal history with alcohol or substance use and that they have their supports. We had several women that when they were discharged a few weeks later, they died of a fatal opioid overdose. And then they were sent home with 30-day supply of a prescription opioid. It was just horrific. The study I'm conducting right now in Palm Beach County, it's actually 80% males, and they've all had an opioid use disorder. They have been incarcerated in the last 12 months. And similarly, which was interesting, and I was surprised that many of the men experienced childhood sexual abuse. And that's something that I wanted to mention. The literature demonstrates such a high rate of childhood sexual abuse for the women that later subsequently have substance use disorder. study I'm conducting right now, I'm seeing that similarly with men. When we're talking about non-stigmatic approaches, it's so important to consider that this individual may have had a childhood trauma. How can we be non-stigmatic and trauma-informed in our approaches? Because it really can be a pathway to someone making the decision for early recovery. What you say makes a lot of sense. I know in my work personally at the syringe exchange, every one of these patients comes in with ACEs scores. You could check off every box. It's right. incredible. And they just nonchalantly talk about these things that happened in their childhood. You often wonder, how did they survive to this point? Exactly. So helpful in our work with patients that have an alcohol or substance use disorder. So we said that internal stigma, that the root of that is shame. Think about, if you haven't done something terrible recently, you may probably don't have a lot of shame right now, but if you can kind of imagine something that you're not proud of, maybe I asked you to tell me about that. You probably would be very hesitant to because you don't trust me, you don't know if it's a safe space, you don't know how I'm gonna react. That's where that stigma is such a deterrent. How people cope with that shame, it's so intolerable, are usually four ways. They attack themselves, or they attack others, or they withdraw, or they run away. Let's take attack others. 
you may be on the recipient of a patient in the ER and they're highly agitated and maybe raising their voice and you're becoming really upset and impatient. And it almost becomes this adversarial exchange. But if you step back and say, the root of this probably is internal shame, internalized stigma. So they're attacking me, the provider, as a way to cope. If you step back and evaluate in that short framework, this behavior is due to shame. If there's an alcohol or substance use disorder, it can kind of help being more non-stigmatic and empathic to the patient and also in how we approach them. This is kind of the internal stigma portion. If we look at the external stigma, which comes from professionals, from physicians, You've done a lot of work in the trenches. So what are some of the comments that you've heard from patients talking about how they've been faced with these external stigma? Sure. So it's really common, the addict, the alcoholic, they're drug seeking, doctor shopping. It's highly judgmental or stigmatized statements. Patients, they're a liar, they manipulate, and that creates a barrier between the patient and the provider. And the patient certainly feels that even if they didn't hear the provider say it to another provider. I understand occupational burnout is real and many hours over the time that you should be working and seeing patients frequently, especially if you're in the ER, it's a lot of stress. So equally important is how to develop an individualized plan. So this toxic stress sometimes in work environments don't impact the way that you practice. That's not what you're asking. You're asking, okay, what, what is this external stigma and how is that impacting? So a really important approach is another psychological theory that's used in health behavior called self-determination theory. It has these two psychological factors that the patient has a sense of autonomy and that they have competence for the health behavior. One of the studies, I think it was the study that you reviewed, I analyzed looking to see if there, any of the providers used a self-determination theoretical approach. And of the 20 individuals, there were two, so they were outliers, that had a provider that absolutely supported them in their autonomy and also their competence for the health behavior. One of the examples, this patient, she was in a rural area. She had to travel an hour and a half to find her buprenorphine provider. Before that, early on the pregnancy, she was on methadone. She didn't want to have her second baby with exposure to methadone. She wanted to be initiated with buprenorphine because she had read, she was very informed mom, the mother study, which was kind of the first study looking at differences between methadone and buprenorphine. And what it demonstrated was that buprenorphine, the neonates had less of a hospitalization stay and less pharmacological interventions. She told the ob that she wanted to, and she couldn't find anyone. Finally, she found someone an hour and a half away, said that that ob and this is the patient report, that she stuck with her, shared decision-making, that she supported her competence and autonomy. Patient paid out-of-pocket and traveled once a week for her buprenorphine, but she attributed to this ob not only that she was able to take her infant home and parent, didn't have DCF involvement, but that she also went on to receive her GED. She attributed that to her ob and I'm sure her ob had no idea <laughs> that she had such a huge impact. And that goes back to that, a provider, you can't imagine how transformational your approach of supporting someone's self-determination and their health behavior can be to have a positive pathway versus being stigmatic.
I could see the doctor or the nurse who is more empathetic and tries to do these things as being somewhat stigmatized themselves in their own medical community for being, oh, you're soft. Come on. She's, she's just, you know, and, and that type of thing. So how do you take this framework, this concept, and transmit it? You've got two endpoints is what it sounds here, the community and the patient. Before I moved to South Florida, I did grand rounds with nurses, with OB-GYNs, with addiction providers, and worked with Department of Public Health and trying to change the culture. In addition, here in South Florida, I worked with Dr. George Luck. And okay, how can we create this invisible thread of a non-stigmatic approach throughout the medical curriculum at FAU? So I'm very thankful he partnered with Social Work to also include social and psychological components of the treatment of alcohol and substance use disorder. If we look at healthcare workers in general, can we speculate or make a statement as to who is the most guilty in terms of throwing this stigmatization on these susceptible patients? I think the ER is really susceptible just because of the volume and that they are seeing a lot of crises and they might see the same patients multiple times. I don't think there's a lot of support and debriefing in emergency rooms. So I think that they're really susceptible. Again, to the question about how do we change this culture and how do we employ self-determination theory and these approaches I was on a dissertation committee for PhD in translational research at George Washington University, and she actually did her study using the positive deviant theory. So it started at, I believe, Mass General with a physician that does end-of-life care, and he actually did it on hand-washing. This is way before COVID, and why there's some, you know, because it was dismal, people washing hands in hospitals. So the positive deviants that were successful in washing hands. So the theory is studying and analyzing, whether it's interviews, focus groups, observations, data of how these positive deviants are successful and what are they doing differently and how can we employ their practice and infiltrate. She did it on positive deviants of people that are wavered for buprenorphine prescribing. This was at Yale. I think the sample size was probably 50. So it was a good sample size for a qualitative study. But some of the components of the people that were positive deviants, they were flexible. If a patient missed an appointment or didn't adhere to some of the recommendations, there was still a welcome door policy. That was really the biggest finding, that flexibility and, of course, a harm reduction framework, sharing that information to encourage providers that it's not as intimidating. You said a few minutes ago about debriefing. To the best of my knowledge, most emergency rooms do not have the equivalent of a tumor board where they sit and discuss the complicated cases. I can remember when I was at Beth Israel in New York, we would essentially have debriefing and we would discuss the cases psychiatrically that came into the ER. And it changed the whole thing. And I see it as the requirement of us changing a patient into a person. To my knowledge, that doesn't happen. Do you have any data about that as being a conversion technique to bring your, your ideas, your good ideas into more practice? I would actually do it in my practice at Women Infants Hospital. And all the college sexual assaults went to our hospital for the sexual assault nursing examination. And then, of course, fetal demises a lot of times happened in our emergency room at the birthing hospital or women's oncology if they weren't enrolled in hospice and it was end stage. So there was a lot of stress in our ER and people were experiencing occupational burnout. After a lot of fighting <laughs> and advocating, we started a debriefing session every week and the attitudes changed, like you just said, and the morale, that connection 
that you just made of supporting healthcare providers just by having debriefing, I think is, is really an important solution. When you were doing the debriefing, what was the segue like? Was it mandated? We talk about with this whole population of patients, they can't feel alone. But the flip side is maybe the doctors and the nurses and, and even some of the social workers, they may feel alone in feeling what they have to do. How is this being received in terms of helping the providers be better providers? I think it's an ethical imperative. I don't think that we invest enough in that. If we did, I think we would have a lot more non-stigmatic approaches because if you feel isolated and you don't feel supported, right? Yes. You'll be more frustrated in your work. So why do you think there hasn't been more effort to do this? There is a ton of effort to give Suboxone. Why is there not more focus on the non-medication modalities in terms of taking your observations and just funding it? Money. <laughs> what about attitude? My experience with the debriefing and when it was finally approved, it took a while for people to trust the space because it can be very toxic environments. It really takes not only a champion, but someone that is, really has high interpersonal skills and can demonstrate this isn't one more thing that you have to do in your very busy day, but this is actually to support you. And I authentically care about that. I would imagine, and I don't think, Brent, you and I have ever talked about it, but when I was in residency, this was my meat and potatoes. We did this every day. Was your training inclined or the people around you inclined to look at these issues, the psychodynamics and the attitudes and all that sort of stuff? And the real question is, your history would be a great input. Are we being as fragmented in current medical education in terms of just giving lip service to the psychological stuff or not? I would say we had very little of that, yet it was an area that I recognize as very important. We were involved at Downstate Medical Center in getting the original approval for Accutane for the severe cases of acne. We were one of the three centers that did the clinical trials. And I actually tried to gather data. We tried to publish something on the change in the emotional affect of the patients. It was a hard sell to get approval to do that study. For years, I've always noticed how critically important the emotional component is, but a lot of my colleagues couldn't be bothered. And you know, some of that goes back to what Heather said, does this have something to do with money? There's not a procedure code for giving emotional support to your patients. And the other piece to that too, some studies demonstrate that only 20% of providers screen for alcohol and substance use. That's part of the stigma too. Mm -hmm. You know, the reasons for that is fear of, oh, my patient might leave, or I don't know how to, what resources to provide if they screen positive. But the challenge is that referral to treatment. Where do we send patients? So that's certainly one of the many multifactorial aspects in trying to provide the best quality care to patients, particularly in the substance use disorder category. If we can simplify this a little bit in terms of tips about how we can resolve the problem. One area that I've read about and I've tried myself and I think I've had some success is language. Can you give us some tips and some linguistic tools to move in a good direction? I'm so glad that you asked that. I'm so thankful for anyone that's listening to this because something that you can do yourself, a non-stigmatic approach, you may not know the significance that it has it has transformational significance. So you might not see the fruit, but you're planting a seed that maybe later on when they're in process of change and they are you know, they're really contemplating that they remember how somebody treated them, that maybe it isn't so scary. 
if you remember one thing, person-centered language. Instead of referring to me as the drug addict, say Heather with an opioid use disorder. And that really changes the environment and makes me think about the patient, as you already stated, as a human. It's so much in our vernacular, say the addict, to say the alcoholic, to say the druggie. Even in professional settings, it's very intentional thinking about how you're going to speak about this patient before you actually verbalize it to other people. Don't call somebody an addict. Don't call them a junkie. Don't call them any of that stuff. It's a person who suffers from yes. substance use. And the other is the shared decision-making model, which I mentioned just a little bit, that this is an evidence-based approach and studies demonstrating its effectiveness with health decisions that cause emotional angst or are complicated, specifically with severe mental health. How you can do this with your patient is just ask what's important to you in your care. And sometimes that seconds of concern can offset what I've heard frequently. Why go to the emergency room? What are they going to do for me? They're going to tell me to go see a counselor. I don't have insurance. Thank you very much. And that's a social problem. Mm-hmm. Are you involved in the training MSW students and residents in doing this type of stuff? Yes, we have a certificate in substance use disorder treatment that they can actually use the hours in their MSW program, further their credentials. And again, we're doing training with year one, year two, and year three medical students. We've done some non-stigmatic approaches presentations with the residents. We are training the future workforce. That's incredibly important work. You should be commended for that. I believe in old dogs also. They have so much clinical experience. This practice is equally the empirical literature, the clinical experience of the provider, but also what are the cultural values and personal beliefs of the patient. The difference that they made in one patient and really life transformation. I think that's when you can have the, wow, this is possible. How broadly is this approach or these questions embraced by other schools of social work, it's just social work in general. They're hoping to institutionalize it to all programs across the United States. The goal is social change, especially families that experience poverty and families of color with child welfare, thinking about how to have non-stigmatic approaches, be trauma-informed, and support the family. It's not just medical. Social work is responsible for this, too, in the institutionalized stigma of alcohol and substance use disorder that's caused a lot of harm. What is the role of racism in terms of stigma, and what's the role of criminalization of drug use. It's such a great topic and anybody that's really interested in delving in that, Dr. Dorothy Robert has written a lot about this. Her work is amazing. In my practice, I saw the institutionalized systemic racism right in front of my eyes that women of color and also poverty, so that gets back to that intersectionality that you were discussing, really had an automatic infant removal. To somebody that was white and had a partner and educated, they were given a little bit of benefit of the doubt. DCF wasn't immediately involved and they were able to take their infant home. That's actually what propelled me to start my PhD. I was just part of that cog in the wheel. It has to change in our society because we're destroying families. It's such a human rights violation. You've touched so many things and somebody listening to this discussion hopefully will be, shall we say, mandated to think a little bit more about this and how this does exist and the most intense expression of this is a woman with a drug problem who is in trouble and goes to an ER 
and just falls between the cracks across the board, except in situations where you have a program set up. Good for you. I'd love to share this self-determination theory. It's a woman, she was actually Moroccan and she had a husband, but she was coming to our ER. She was drinking a pint of hard liquor, a lot, and she would come in totally intoxicated and she was pregnant with twins. The ER team was so upset. They would page me, aren't you going to call DCF? I would explain to them that in the state of Rhode Island, that until the babies are born, the DCF does not get involved. After third, fourth visit and the husband just didn't know what to do, Instead of discharging her home, I went to the attending position in high-risk pregnancy the, to him. I said, please, can we admit her? And he said, she doesn't have a medical diagnosis to be admitted. I said, well, she has severe alcohol use disorder and gestation with twins. Can we just for a few days for monitoring and stabilize her? He said, yeah. So that was one thing, physician taking a chance and going against protocol. She was my captive audience. She actually stayed for five days and I'd spend an hour, an hour and a half with her each day. And we really just started on having discussions. Clinical social work can do this. We have a little more time with patients that make does help. Her philosophy, she identified as a feminist Muslim and I identified as feminist Judeo-Christian. And we had these philosophical discussions of what that is and are they polarized? We didn't talk about the alcohol use disorder. She knew that she had misusing alcohol. Day three, she disclosed to me that in Morocco from age 10 to 16, her paternal uncle was sexually abusing her. She had never told anyone but her mother. And we know just as traumatic is a parent not believing and or protecting the child as the actual sexual abuse. So when she had told her mother, her mother told her, don't you ever repeat that again. You will ruin the family. And we also know through trauma being kind of stored in the body that sometimes you can hold it all together, but then when you become pregnant, it comes to surface. She was coping with the shame through attacking the self and also the self-medicating with the alcohol use. So we talked about that and processed that. The next day, she said, I want to leave the hospital and go to the only treatment program in Rhode Island that took pregnant and postpartum moms with their babies. And she did that. Months later, she delivered healthy twins, no fetal alcohol syndrome. And she emailed me and said, thank you. I'm learning how to be a better wife, a good mom, and a better person. And I said, thank you for letting me be part of your journey. And you did all the work. I didn't use a particular clinical approach other than the non-stigmatic approach, treating her as a human, promoting shared decision-making and self-determination it was successful. How can everyone practice this way? Like, how can everybody have this framework? And I think it's what you're both doing, continuing the conversation. And how can we address this all different approaches and not just, okay, suboxone? That isn't necessarily the answer. It's multifaceted. Heather Howard is Associate Professor at the School of Social Work at Florida Atlantic University. Heather, thanks so much for joining us for this discussion. Thank you both very much.